Hello and welcome to the 12 Minutes of Workplace Health podcast. I'm Harry Bliss, CEO and co-founder of Champion Health, and today we're joined by Dr. Richard Heron. Richard was a former Vice President of Health at BP and is also a member of our Global Wellbeing Advisory Board at Champion Health. Today we're going to be discussing the future of workplace health, what health and wellbeing strategies look like, and as well as how we can engage senior leadership teams in wellbeing going forwards. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Hello, Richard. How are you? I'm very well, Harry. Good to speak with you again. Likewise, likewise. So I'm really interested to, to find out a little bit more and get our audience to find out a bit more around converting people across the senior leadership team. It's a challenge that many people face towards well-being. Before we go into that, could you just share a little bit more around your background, the work that you've done at BP and also with the likes of the World Health Organization? I'm a doctor by background, many years. Then after leaving hospital internal medicine, 30 years ago, really, it's amazing. I've worked in industry with chemical companies, with pharmaceutical companies, and latterly with BP. And I also do quite a lot of work with the NHS as well, National Health Service at the moment. Occupational health, I guess, is the main discipline. But it actually, I think it's much more sort of organizational health is how I would put it. When it comes to your time across BP and managing and supporting the well-being of tens of thousands of employees, must have been a hell of a lot that you learned there. And there must have been a lot that you learned in terms of converting the leadership team to really engage in well-being. What are the lessons that you learned across that time frame? Well, I think you have to break your time down into different phases, I think. When you first start with an organization, I think really, in many cases, you spend the first couple of months, probably six months, really just working out which way is up, getting to know the organization, who's who, how it's organized, how it behaves, what the culture's like. But shortly after that, I think you're really thinking about where do I want to be in the next two to five? What are the sort of longer term things that I want to make happen in this organization? Because they take a little longer. So I think first thing I would suggest is you, you really think about the phasing of what you're going to be doing. I think the second thing, and it, it's almost the first thing really, and it is part of that six months, the time you spend really understanding the nature of the business you're advising is absolutely well spent and really understanding what their problems are that you can help with. I think the biggest lesson I've learned really is stop selling health and well-being and start sorting out the problems of the organization using health and well-being. If you take that strategy, then you stop seeing leaders sort of glazing over, oh my goodness, not another person coming to sell me stuff about my well-being. You've actually got someone who's going to help me deliver what I have to deliver, keep me in a job, keep my company successful. So I think flip it on its head. Don't try and spend too much time purely selling your product, health and well-being. Really spend a lot of time understanding what the nature of the organization is and what the problems are. And that's really giving you the biggest clues on how you can sort of make interventions that are going to be useful. I think we'll get support and we'll get sticky as well. They'll tend to stick. I think that's a big challenge that we hear around that stickiness and getting people to come back using those services and using the interventions that, that we speak about. When it comes to, to people across the organization with different remits, especially across the leadership teams, how important is it to customize the way that you talk to them and talk in their language? And are there any examples that you've got within there for a CFO through to a head of operations, for example? Well, I think sometimes we put a bit too much attention on speaking their language and it rather sort of confuses a little bit. So if you think about you talking to the CFO, there's a tendency to think, oh my goodness, I need to know all about profit and loss. I need to know about EBITDA, return on shares, all sorts of things, and start talking in that language. 
Another little lesson I've learned is never try and outfinance a CFO. You know, it's pretty obvious you're an amateur, if not, you know, almost ignorant of what their level of expertise is. And there's really little point competing with them on the basis of language. But understand what their agenda is. It's just the same conversation we just started, really. What is their mm -hmm. big issue for the company? You know, if you go to VP and talk to the current CFO there, Murray, or if you talk to the previous CFOs, you know, they will have a financial frame. They will have a set of objectives that they want to deliver. Some of them will be around cost. Some of them will be around business generation. And they'll have various goals that they want to achieve over the next period of time. They'll also want to make sure things are done ethically. They'll want to make sure that the governance is in a good place. They'll also want to know that if there are things going wrong, they get to hear about them early. So those are the sorts of things that actually a conversation with a CFO will give you an indication of, you know, what's on their mind. Now, once you've got that, you then think, well, okay, if you want people who are, you know, not going to get distracted, potentially make mistakes through errors of judgment, potentially, you can already start to see where well-being is going to make a difference. You know, people who are rested, people who are looking after themselves, who've got great nutrition, great exercise, and are actually in good shape, and they've got good relationships and are not worried about finance and other matters, are much more likely to be able to focus on their job. So, you know, this is your route into helping the CFO make sure that the governance of that area is in good shape. But also, when under pressure, people often take shortcuts, and that's not so mm. fine. So you don't want to have a situation where people are got so much to do that they're actually missing out important steps in terms of governance, giving them the sense of, you know, it's okay to speak up, it's okay to challenge, it's okay to question things. All of that is in the interest of the CFO. So that's just one key stakeholder on an LT. And if you take any of the others, the marketing lead, the operations lead, the chief executive, you know, or any of those people, or the person responsible for, say, sustainability and ethics or, or legal, they will all have their particular priorities. And you need to really understand and know them. That's when you start to be able to put the wellbeing program into their lap and get their support for it, I found. The research suggests exactly the same reading Daniel Pink's books, for example, around persuasion. It's understanding their yeah. problems and then being able to tailor it around that. And the thing with well-being, Absolutely. of course, it affects all areas of the business. One of the things you mentioned that I'd love to unpack a little bit, and we spoke about this previously, is the low-hanging fruit. And especially when it comes to the champions that are engaged in well-being and the stories that they can tell, how important are they across the organization for a successful strategy to be able to have all of the benefits that we know that it can achieve? Well, they're incredibly important. And I think part of the mission is actually giving them voice, really. One of the big ways of actually getting, say, mental health on an agenda is actually hearing your leadership talking very powerfully about their own personal experiences of mental health challenges or challenges with, say, addiction or alcohol or whatever, either personally or in their family. Once you sort of hear that being said by the big boss of an organization, many people who inevitably will have been affected by similar issues in their lives feel it's actually okay to talk about these. And if the, if the CEO is talking about it, then maybe I can talk about it too. So you start to actually get an army of people who feel confident enough to engage on well-being. These are basically your supporters right across the organization. And again, I think this is part of your, you know, getting things done strategy. 
is really identifying critical stakeholders, people and groups throughout the organization. Many of them have no direct line relationship with you. You can't sort of give them a task to do because they're part of your team. It's really about influencing. Quite early on, somebody will say, I'm really worried about so-and-so. Now, you know, whether you've got other jobs on that day, that's your priority there and then, you know, get it fixed, help that person. They themselves will be forever grateful and you've got a fantastic advocate on, on your hands there. And similarly, so will their boss. And you'll be beginning to get the sort of viral effect that, oh, we had a problem with this and Richard sorted it out. You know, it's great. You don't want, I tried to get to see the doctor who's just too busy, or I tried to get somebody sorted out and they didn't have any time for me. So I think those are the sort of low-hanging fruit. It's a bit of an art, but it's actually trying to identify which things really need to get done, which is sort of urgent yeah. to do. You know, this sort of urgent and important matrix as well. That same matrix is worth looking at. Don't waste your time on lots of things that really aren't important, and certainly those that are not urgent, in that early period. And one of the themes that I wanted to pick back up on that you mentioned around halfway through today's session is around self-care and the importance of self-care. And it seems to have got quite a bad reputation recently with people criticising the likes of mindfulness yoga programmes that we know the evidence suggests that it has huge impact. What's your take on it at the moment? Well, I don't think those two things are the same thing, actually. So I don't know I would conflate them. When your boss is not on top of things, when they're stressed, when they're anxious, when they're worried about things, everybody knows, oh, don't go and speak with the boss today. They're in a bit of a mood. If you're the boss that they're talking about in that way, they're also going to perhaps not tell you about something that's just not going so well right now. And actually, the most useful thing as a boss would be actually hearing about something that's beginning to go off the rails early rather than when it's really gone pop or something really bad has happened. So, you know, that's really around helping big leaders to really be on top of their emotional game. And that's about their anxiety and their well-being. Now, you know, how they get to that point is very much an individual journey. But what it does need is periods of recovery as well as focus and attention on the work that they're doing. You can't just keep going relentlessly without a break. Otherwise, you know, all of your neurochemistry tells you you shouldn't be doing this. You start to make thought mistakes. You start to misread the signals. You potentially get angry with people that you shouldn't because you thought you saw something that wasn't actually correct. And relationships can get easily broken. So a strategy for managing that situation, which involves how to switch off, how to sort of check in with yourself that, that you are actually looking after your own self is really, really important. Now, you know, that switching off thing is really around doing something that is entirely different to what you do every day. You know, if you're a guy or a lady who's reading the financial pages, The Economist every day, you're dealing with the CFO, so all the financial reports, reading those things over the weekend is actually not switching off, even if you enjoy it. That's called obsessive passion. And it squeezes out all those other things that we depend on, great relationships, sleep, and looking after ourselves. So doing something different, it could be meditation, it could be yoga, it could be those sorts of things, or it could be, I like cycling, or I like swimming, or I like just walking with my dog, or whatever it is that I, that I like doing. It's got to be doing something a bit different. Now, I think the problem is those sorts of things are very real. They're very tactical. So that means it's often the case we hear a narrative about we can sort out well-being problems with yoga and meditation and cake and sandwiches and things. This is the myth. The reality is 
the majority of the significant impacts on people's well-being at work are around the behaviors around them. You know, you join a company, you leave a boss because they might be a bully, because they might be in command and control mode, because they give you no praise for what you do, because they don't involve you in decision-making. So if you're trying to enhance well-being, I would say the primary intervention is organizational every time. Now, that isn't to diminish the importance of apps and support programs and information and behavior change programs for individuals, you know, in terms of self-care, but doing that without the former is a, basically a recipe for disaster. It's basically PR we care, but actually under the bonnet, we don't. It doesn't sit well with actually people actually feeling better and functioning better and delivering a great day's work and actually going home feeling that they've got a sense of purpose and fulfillment. So, you know, what I find amazing is if this is really applied common sense, it's not that common. It's actually difficult for many people to articulate that to leaders, to tell leaders that about this common sense, because they're worried about what might happen. I might look stupid or I don't know what the boss will think. So if you can't say it yourself, well, that's an indication of the culture a little bit, but you probably need an advocate, maybe an occupational health leader, maybe a well-being leader. Maybe somebody else who really gets well-being in your organization. You know, we've talked about zealots and converts in the past. It's that sort of conversation about who really gets this already that I can trust? You know, how do we address those sorts of things? So, yep, meditation, great, great place for it. It's not everybody's cup of tea, but something different. Something that switches your brain from focus and attention mode to mind-wandering mode. You know, that in-the-bath mode where you have your best ideas where you really sort of suddenly come up with things that are great rather than you're really paying attention to the detail. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And I completely agree as well around the organizational change and the culture coming first and then the self-care coming second as well. Richard, these podcasts are always too short, but loads to unpack within that for our listeners today. So just want to say a huge thank you for joining us today and for sharing your expertise. Absolute pleasure, Harry. Look forward to seeing you again soon. For more exclusive insights and content around workplace well-being, please subscribe to this podcast and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode.